here you have a former president committing gruesome murders, convicted by the country, and very few people have paid attention, actually, until this week when, when he did not show up to go to prison. Medieval crimes are being committed. I come with clean hands. Victims of horrific crimes want justice. We don't have anything better than this. This is Asymmetrical Haircuts, your international justice podcast, with Janet Anderson and Stephanie Vandenberg. This episode was produced in partnership with justiceinfo.net. All rise. Hi, Janet. Hi, Susanna. Oh, my God. That's a twist, isn't it? It's not Stephanie, it's Susanna. Stephanie is here lurking in this meeting and we'll see her in the picture, but she has lost her voice and Susanna very kindly is ventriloquizing or something like that for her. So Susanna, why don't you just tell us who you are? I'm a journalist and I'm an ex-CNN producer, formerly based in London. But I've been living in the Netherlands for the past 10 years now. And for the past six months, I've been working behind the scenes at Asymmetrical Haircuts. And so it's lovely to be on this end. Great. Nice to see you stepping out of the shadows. And joining us also today is a person who's described on his Zoom identity as Maître Brody, also known as Reed Brody. Hi, Reed. Hey, how you doing? Fine. Thank you for joining us. Reed last appeared at the end of 2022 when he was then talking about all kinds of exploits that he's been up to in his very long career as a human rights advocate, but particularly about the trial of the former Chadian dictator Hussein Habre. And we invited you this time, Reed, because you've recently been attending the appeals decision in Suriname of the former president, um, but maybe we'll get into the nomenclature as how else we want to describe him, Daisy Bautise, along with four others, they were found guilty of involvement in killings of 15 different government critics way back in December 1982. That's more than 40 years ago. But before we get on to Bautise, I've had another legal issue I just wanted to raise with you, Reid. Did I or did I not steal your analogy likening the genocide case against Israel at the International Court of Justice to the World Cup. Did I steal it, Reid? Well, I, 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 I came up with it, but you may, have, well, you may have come up with it yourself. But it was kind of amazing. It was the international law equivalent of the World Cup finals. As a lawyer, to see the entire world watching as these two you know, heavy as, as South Africa and Israel slugged it out. I mean, it was it was gratifying. It was an amazing case. And I just want to say in my own defense that I thought that I came up with it by myself because I was scrabbling for a way to make it clear to my student daughter, who's not so completely involved in this world as I am, as to how big a deal this was. But I'll come back to you, Reid. What do we all feel about using terms like the World Cup? to describe this. Susanna, you also used Blockbuster, didn't you? Why did you use that? I did, yeah. I used that on one of our social media posts about the ICJ hearing for our podcast last week. I used it because this case, as Reed said, was garnering a lot of media attention. It was a big deal and lots of people have been interested in it. And I was at the ICJ on Thursday in front and there were protesters, there was a whole media circus. It was a big deal. I know that some have raised uh, a point saying that it was 
possibly an inappropriate word. And I can understand that. We want to take these cases seriously. But I also understand using it from a more layman's perspective, like from my own perspective, to get across just how much of a big deal that it is. And we certainly don't want to trivialize it, but we do want to explain in as few words as possible just how important it is. Well, let me turn back to you, Reid. What do you think about using this kind of layman's language? I mean, that's part of what this podcast is about, is trying to explain things sometimes for a non-legal audience. Do you think we trivialize things? No, I don't. I mean, for three months, as Israel has been you know, raining death and destruction on Gaza, everybody is saying, where is the law? And I think, you know, South Africa gave the world this amazing holiday present by injecting the law into this to explain to people, you know, how rare and how important it is that the highest court in the world is taking on one of the worst situations in the world uh, from two countries, you know, that have this history of suffering and is going to issue, you know, binding rulings. And as an international lawyer, in addition to being a human being caring about the suffering that's going on, this is just such validation for the idea of the law that I think it's, uh, it's, it's a way of, of explaining to people just how unusual this is. Well, maybe we'll come back to that at the end of the podcast, sort of what people's idea of the law is and, and what it can do. But just let's start off with Daisy Baltasay. Usually this is the point at which we do Staffopedia, where Steph kind of steps in with her encyclopedic knowledge. And Susanna, how do you feel about stepping into the gap? Can you, can you help us out? Look, I'll, I'll give it a go. I'm, I'm not sure I'll be as good as Steph, but, but I'll step in for today. Um, yes, so Desi Baltase is the former president of Suriname. Uh, he is now 78 years old. He was a military officer, so he became the dictator of Suriname in 1980 after leading a coup to overturn the government. This was about five years after Suriname gained its independence from the Netherlands. I have seen it described as a bloodless coup, but his dictatorship was pretty violent. Um, in the early years of his rule, he instituted evening curfews, there was a gag on the media, and he banned political parties. And so it's during this period in 1982 that the 15 prominent op opponents of Bautasi were tortured and shot, which we'll go into. But he was also convicted in the Netherlands of drug trafficking. It's believed that he was the head of a drug cartel smuggling cocaine into Europe in the 80s and 90s. But despite these killings and convictions, he has dominated the political scene in Suriname for years. And after ruling as the dictator, he was later democratically elected as president from uh, 2010 to 2020. And he left office in 2020. Thank you. Good summary. Reid, why don't you um, bring us into the trial itself? Uh, you're a member of the International Commission of Jurists, and I believe that they sent you to cover this appeals hearing. I assume the trial had been going on for some time, the actual conviction was some time ago, and then this appeals hearing was later. Can you give us a flavour of what it's been all about? Sure. Well, this has been an incredible political and legal soap opera that the killings took place 41 years ago. And even after Bautrecy handed back power in 1987, the new democratic government 
was, you know, was, was reticent to go after him. And he's always enjoyed a lot of support in the country. And it wasn't until the eve of the statute of limitations on first-degree murder 18 years later that the victims actually obtained a court order obliging the attorney general to begin prosecution in 2000. And charges were finally laid in 2007. The case then uh, went to a specially constituted court. But then, as, as you mentioned, Bouchers, it was actually elected president in 2010. And the first thing he did was pass an amnesty law that purported to stop the prosecutions. And that held things up for four years until the court, to its credit, said that the amnesty law was in violation of Suriname's obligations under the American Convention on Human Rights to prosecute human rights crimes and went forward. Uh, then uh, Bouchersi tried to order the attorney general, who is a, a career legal officer in, in Suriname, um, to uh, try to stop the prosecutions on national security grounds. The court rejected that. He tried to fire the attorney general. That didn't work. And in 2019, when he was still president of the country, the court convicted him and others of first-degree murder. Because he was out of the country at the time, he was on a visit actually to China, he was entitled to a full new, and, and didn't attend the, the trial by his choice, he was entitled to a full review, which he got. The uh, review uh, upheld the conviction in 2021 when he was no longer president, uh, and he appealed that to the highest court, the Hafan Justitie, which in December um, issued its final ruling um, confirming uh, the conviction and his sentence of 20 years. So it's been this incredibly long slog that is really thanks to the tenacity of the victims, but also to the independence and the fortitude of the Suriname judges who refused to bend to, uh, you know, to these political pressures. I mean, how many countries would convict a sitting president of human rights crimes? Can you explain a little bit about what's behind it? What were the December murders? Can you give us a few details on that? So these were very gruesome murders. Basically, Bouchersay, who was the military ruler at the time, took 15 of the leading opponents, uh, lawyers, journalists, uh, business people, newspaper editor, and took them from their houses at, at 2 and 3 in the morning, um, brought them to a fort in the capital, Paramaribo, um, had them viciously tortured. Uh, the, the labor leader was castrated, for instance, um, and then they were killed and their bodies were dumped at the morgue. And obviously this shocked Surinamese society and a lot of people then went into exile um, and it's cast a pall over these December murders uh, over the country for, for many years. I've been conscious as a uh, Anglophone journalist uh, how little we've actually heard about this in the press, whether British, American, and even some European. But here in the Netherlands, Bautis has been a regular feature of practically every bit of press that I've read about in the last 20, 30 years that I've been living here. Also, this is Steph's input. Thank you, Steph. The family actually went into exile. They, they wound up in the Netherlands. But just why do you think, Reid, that this has all got so little attention worldwide? 
Well, it's kind of amazing. As you say, in, in Holland, it's front page news. The conviction was on the front page. I was all over you know, the Dutch press and TV. Once you go outside, I mean, it, Suriname is an isolated country. Most people I tell about it don't know where it is. It's, uh, you know, it is uh, between Guiana and French Guiana. It's got very little connections to other countries. It's a fascinating place. The most diverse country in the world. The leading ethnic group are what they call Hindustanis, which include both Indians and, and Muslims from the East, um, Indonesians, Chinese, uh, runaway slaves, very sparsely populated, only 600,000 people, almost all living across the coast. And it's the most forested country in the world. It's actually a fascinating place. And of course, what, you, know, you walk on the street and you see an Indian speaking to a Chinese and they're speaking in Dutch. Um, and, and not Creole Dutch, I mean, real Dutch. <laughs> um, and of course, it doesn't help that it's such an inaccessible language on top of everything. This case has played out, of course, Holland as the colonial power is lurking in the background. And, and, and Bouter, say, tends to blame everything on the Dutch. He says that these people uh, who he had killed were in league with the Americans and the Dutch. And actually, one of the reasons the ICJ sent me, a non-Dutch speaker, to observe the trial is because you don't want to inject Holland you know, and Dutch people into this. I was, in fact, the only obser outside observer at the verdict. And how many countries convict their former president? It, it is very frustrating, I think, the, the lack of attention. I, mean, I was in Germany a few weeks ago uh, when a very low-level driver for a hit squad for Yaya Jame was convicted. And, and, you know, that was all over the press. I was on the BBC. And here you have a former president committing gruesome murders, convicted by the country. And very few people have paid attention, actually, until this week when, when he did not show up to go to prison. Just going to inject a quick question. Another aside from Steph is, do you speak Dutch or do you have some kind of hidden language talent. I mean, how did you follow this if you don't speak Dutch, Reed? So I had a, uh, an interpreter with me at the hearings, and, and most of the people I was dealing with, most of the victims, again, this was the cream of society who were murdered. Um, most of the journalists I was dealing with uh, speak Dutch. I mean, I did go to a, a rally, actually, of 4,000 of Baltrusi's supporters a few days before the verdict. I had an interpreter with me. Dutch is the most closely related language to English in the world. And I lived in Belgium for many years. So passively, I can understand a lot of Dutch, even though I can't speak it. Just going back to the case, and Steph has a question. She's wondering, what case did the defense make? Uh, I know you've mentioned that uh, Boutisset claimed that he had political opponents and political rivals and that they were the cause of these accusations of killings. So what was their defense? Yes, they argued that there was a plot with the Netherlands and America, but they never presented any evidence to show that. Um, Bouchersey said that he was not personally involved. He took political responsibility, but that he had nothing to do with the actual killings. And on appeal, one of his major arguments was that it was not premeditated murder. And since the victim's last-minute filing to stop the statute of limitations only applied to first-degree murder, 
he could only be convicted on a showing that the murders were premeditated. And so a lot of the evidence, both at the trial, but also, I mean, the discussion on review came to the question of, of whether or not these were premeditated. And I mean, the trial court and the appellate court found that they were premeditated murders. And in terms of the whole case, Reed, I get the impression from you that there are a few things that, that really struck you. This idea that there's a country that's put a former president on trial, that's pretty rare. But also the tenacity of the families of those involved. What was the thing that really struck you about this? Yeah, I mean, you know, in all the cases that I've been involved in over the last 20, 30 years, um, the driving force has been, you know, the victims and their families. And victims don't give up. You know, 20 years later, 30 years later, you killed my parents, you killed my brother, you killed my husband. I'm going to fight for justice. And in this case, it was only the victims who brought that case in at the end. One of the victims who I was with, Lillian Gonzalez, um, her husband was a lawyer. Um, she's a lawyer. She actually, like many people, actually left for, left for the Netherlands afterward, where she became the commissioner for the Netherlands of uh, anti-discrimination. She became the international executive chair of Amnesty International. People who, who have the, not, not just the courage, but the sophistication the family of the labor leader, all these families. The court was packed the day I was there almost exclusively with, it was a small court, there were only about 40 seats or so, um, but they were almost all occupied by these victims who just have never given up. And then I didn't meet any of the judges who, who were on the case, but what I found quite impressive uh, was that at each instance, judges went forward dispassionately the president of the country is trying to press an amnesty on you, and you go to international law and you say that this amnesty violates. I mean, very few countries would uh, invoke international treaties to press forward on cases when the president and the majority uh, party in the country are trying to stop a case. And so the one word that I did keep using in Dutch was Rechtstaat. The rule of law. I mean, Surinamese are very proud of this concept of Rechstadt. I saw that in play from beginning to end, and I was very impressed. And I, you know, I've become an evangelical for, for this case and for how Suriname applied so proudly the concept of Rechstadt. So what now? He's not there. His wife has said that he's not going to put himself forward. Uh, do we know about his capture, the search for him, his imprisonment. Apparently there's a cell being built for him. And also we have this aside from, from Stephanie. We have to keep reading the asides, Susanna, otherwise, you know, it's like she's not here. And the aside from Stephanie says, Dutch media are reporting that the Suriname media says that Bautise may be in Venezuela. What's your comment, Reid? Yeah, so he was convicted on the 20th of December. He then had a certain amount of time to request a pardon. And when that period was up, he was asked to, to turn himself in. And then on Friday the 12th, he did not turn himself in. Um, as you say, there, there was a lot of discussion first as to where he might be held. And it turns out that they, they are building a, a cell within a military hospital for him. I think they're concerned not just you know, for his safety, but also uh, his kind of... <laughs> 
riling up other prisoners. And it was generally considered the best solution would be to keep him in a cell where, where he could have visitors as, as normally, but, but where the perimeter is guarded, obviously, by the state. He did not show up uh, on Friday the 12th. Um, his wife said she doesn't know where he is. The head of the party says he's in Suriname. Um, but there is a lot of speculation that he has fled to, to Venezuela or to Cuba. I mean, he always styled himself as a revolutionary. At the rally I went to of his supporters, there was a big poster about revolutionaries in America where you see him with you know, Che Guevara and Bolivar and Fidel Castro and, and the like. But there are a lot of calculations here because his party is the second biggest party in the country. And they're contesting elections in, in a year and a half. And it's not necessarily a good look for your party leader to be seen as a coward hiding out in, in some other country. We don't know where he is. The authorities have egg on their face for not tailing him better. I think they are committed to, to, you know, to bringing him to justice. I met with the foreign minister. I met with other officials. But at the moment, they don't appear to know where he is. Well, I think that's a case that we're going to probably have to come back to at some point then and see what happens. But thank you. Just before we finish the podcast, I wanted to make what might seem a bit of a leap, a bit of an odd link. But what was in my mind over the end of the year and the beginning of the new year was another old man, uh, Henry Kissinger, the former Secretary of State of the United States. He turned uh, 100 during last year. But He's never faced any kind of justice, any kind of trial for any of the atrocities that many people accuse him of being linked to. One of the reasons why I was thinking about him was because on an entertainment podcast, they were saying, let's describe the other side of Henry Kissinger. And they described him very specifically as a star fucker, that he was somebody who hung out with people in Hollywood all the time and was renowned for the affairs he had. And it just, it got me just really annoyed thinking about people thinking about him like this. In my mind, I just wanted to contrast the two different fates of these these two different men. But before we get into any more of the detail, Reed, maybe you could take on the role of Readopedia and uh, tell us what we need to know about Henry Kissinger. How would you describe his legacy? I think he is certainly responsible for as much human suffering as anybody in, in my lifetime. Probably from Chile to Argentina to Bangladesh to East Timor to Cyprus to Iran, I mean, Cambodia and Vietnam. There are millions of people uh, who are dead uh, uh, because of Henry Kissinger. The reason I've been writing and talking about Henry Kissinger is because in, in the aftermath of the Pinochet arrest uh, 20 years ago when international justice became a thing, I was teaching a class at Columbia Law School and one of the term papers that students could do was to look at a particular person, a particular incident, and determine whether or not war crimes had been committed. And many of them chose Henry Kissinger um, and looked at different incidents. Obviously, it's one thing to say that somebody has, you know, is responsible for millions of deaths. It's another thing to say in a very strict legal term that they are a war criminal, because that term tends to get applied to Henry Kissinger as an epithet rather than as an actual legal title. <laughs> um, I mean, I've analyzed, for instance, in Cambodia, where you know, Henry Kissinger was directly involved in choosing targets 
when the Viet Cong were using Cambodia to supply their troops in Vietnam. Henry Kissinger basically gave an order that said anything that flies on anything that moves. In other words, civilians, military, whatever. And we know that, you know, as a result of that order, bombings of civilian areas went up and hundreds of thousands of people, it's hard to know exactly how many, um, were killed directly as a result of U.S. bombing uh, under Henry Kissinger's watch. In other cases, it's more difficult because we're talking about client states. But you have, for instance, in Bangladesh, which at a certain point was East Pakistan and there were elections. Basically, the, the winner of the election was an East Pakistani uh, who was independence-minded. But the U.S. was allied with supposedly outgoing military ruler Yahya Khan, who was organizing Kissinger's secret trip to China. When the, the, the Pakistani military began its genocide in, in East Pakistan, killing in particular Hindu minorities, but raping tens of thousands of people, people in the U.S. State Department in Dhaka, the capital of what was then East Pakistan, were warning the state, were warning Henry Kissinger directly about the killings that were going on. So we are being complicit here in a genocide. The U.S. ambassador to uh, India, former U.S. Senator Keating, told Nixon and uh, Kissinger in the Oval Office that, that we are participating in a genocide. Kissinger had the State Department guy fired. They called uh, Keating a traitor. And in the height of all of that, they got arms transfers. Uh, you couldn't get, give U.S. arms directly, but they were able to engineer arms from, I think, Jordan and Iran um, to go to Pakistan. So that makes you complicit in, in a very legal way of aiding and abetting. When you know that when you are giving material aid, knowing that that aid is going to be used in the commission of crimes, war crimes or others. So why was he never brought to court? Why was he never even questioned? Is it just a case that he was from the right country? He's from the United States, so there wasn't a chance. Well, what do you think? The, the short answer is yes. I mean, who's going to put the handcuffs on an American former secretary of state? There have been a, many attempts there's a whole list of other countries I could go into, but I mean, there have been attempts to bring him in for questioning. He fled Paris at a certain point rather than accept an order to appear in court. Case was filed against him when he was in London and he left and he stopped traveling to a lot of places. His crimes were committed before the heyday of international justice. But what's ironic is that many of the places he was involved in, like Cambodia, um, like Bangladesh, um, like East Timor, they ended up actually having trials and having a court to look into atrocities committed. In the case of Cambodia, the jurisdiction of the special chambers of the extraordinary chambers in Cambodia did not go back to Kissinger's time. Each time the U.S. put too much pressure on Hun Sen, the head of Cambodia, he said, you know, we, we, could, we, we could make this court apply to your period too. Um, in Bangladesh as well, there was an international criminal tribunal, but it did not look into people who were not then living in Bangladesh. And in East Timor, which we could have talked about, um, the court also, even though it, the Timorese Truth Commission said that the U.S. was, you know, provided the means for the slaughter uh, by the Indonesians of, of a third of the population of East Timor, um, they also did not go back to that period. So I think it is really a question of who is going to have the courage. And, and again, that's why, you know, what we see in South Africa recently is so important. You know, who has the courage to go up against powerful actors in our world? What does it say, do you think, Reed, about 
the current state of international criminal justice. I mean, you mentioned sort of the start of it all, Pinochet, and you've talked about the different places we've seen justice go on in places like Cambodia and even maybe a flawed version, but still happening in Bangladesh. But there's extreme contrast in the fates of these two different men where Kissinger fades happily away, presumably at home or in hospital and so on, and about to say is off on the run. What does it say about the state of where we are with international criminal justice now in 2024? Double standards are the Achilles heel of international justice. There's no doubt about that. I mean, it's it's difficult enough to get a Charles Taylor or his and Habre before an international court. I mean, we've seen it's virtually impossible to get powerful Western actors, whether it's before the ICC. Look at universal jurisdiction. I mean, the Belgian law and the Spanish law on universal jurisdiction, you know, they were great for his and Habre. The Spanish law was great for Pinochet. But once, you know, Americans, Israelis, Chinese were attacked, these countries repealed their universal jurisdiction laws. Uh, Germany, too, which has taken such a lead in universal jurisdiction. I mean, when Center for Constitutional Rights and the ECCHR filed cases in Berlin uh, against Donald Rumsfeld and others for torture during the so-called War on Terror, uh, Germany took a pass. They were not going to go up against the United States. I think we see that at the ICC as well. Yeah, absolutely. You say we see it at the ICC as well. That's exactly how we started off with our first podcast of the year when we asked everybody what the main issues were that they felt that that is faced. I mean, there's a big range of issues that we know that we're facing, but double standards is really a theme, I think, for this, this coming year. What are your plans, Reeds, to do something about this? Well, I think, you know, fighting on behalf of, justice all over the world. I I think what is so heartwarming about South Africa's case is that Israel has always seemed above the law. The ICC prosecutor, who was so good and so prompt in going to Ukraine and indicting Vladimir Putin, I mean, we've seen this reticence to do the same uh, with Israel. One of the exciting developments here is the use of the International Court of Justice as a human rights court. I mean, you know, up until recently, there were very few human rights cases at the ICJ, um, and they were only brought by parties um, that were connected to the conflict. And in actually the case I was involved in, when Belgium brought Senegal to the ICJ to order it to prosecutor indict uh, or, or extradite Hissen Habre, Senegal challenged Belgium's standing. And the court responded that any country that ratifies the torture convention um, has standing because these are obligations erga omnes partis. And then Gambia, which I think was one of the, the, the highlights of the decade in international justice, took uh, Myanmar to the ICJ under this precedent. And now we're seeing South Africa uh, bring Israel to the ICJ. So I think, um, you know, the ICJ, which seems, although it's a very conservative court, um, I mean, most of the judges at the ICJ are legal, former legal advisors at the State Department. Um, you know, it, it could turn out to be a less biased institution uh, than the ICC has, has shown to be so far. 
I think we're going to be watching very carefully. I just wanted to say thank you very much, Reid, for uh, particularly giving us your experience from Suriname and sharing with us some of your thoughts about uh, where we are, kind of a wither bit at the end. And for covering the ICJ, obviously, we're looking forward to Stephanie coming back with voice, hopefully, uh, on the podcast. Susanna, thanks so much for stepping in and uh, for providing the, uh, the extra oomph to the podcast. Thanks for having me and uh, hopefully Steph will be back next week. Thanks, Reed. Thank you. Bye. This was Asymmetrical Haircuts, your international justice podcast, created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. This episode was produced in partnership with justiceinfo.net, an independent site covering justice effort for mass violence. Music is by audionautics.com. And you can find show notes and everything about the podcast on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. This show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe, give us a rating and spread the word.